Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. Good morning. I'm Osama Wazni. I'm the section head of cardiac electrophysiology at the Cleveland Clinic, and with me here is uh, Dr. Lindsay, the past uh, section head, immediate past section head of cardiac electrophysiology at the Cleveland Clinic. Also, Dr. Lindsay was a past president of Heart Rhythm Society. Both of us are uh, thrilled to be here this morning to talk about the Cabana trial and its implications on our clinical work, uh, everyday work uh, in EP. Dr. Lindsay will take the lead and uh, I, will be, I will be discussing with him uh, the study in detail. Cabana is a very interesting trial. It was one that uh, really was designed to look at additional benefits from going through an ablation. And, and what I mean by that is that most patients come to us for ablation procedures because they have symptomatic atrial fibrillation. Many of them, uh, either medicines have failed to control their arrhythmias or were not tolerated, and then they came to us because they, they needed relief from the kind of symptoms they had. Because for many people, atrial fibrillation has a significant burden on quality of life. In some instances, patients also looked at the risks of taking medicines and just didn't want to take them. So that's really why we do ablation procedures, to improve quality of life. The question really raised by that uh, uh, Cabana focused on is whether it reduces the risks of death, stroke, bleeding, or cardiac arrest. And that was a combined endpoint that they looked at to see whether it would make a difference. Uh, they also looked at all-cause mortality and hospitalization, uh, recurrence to atrial fibrillation, and certain other secondary endpoints. So in doing this trial, it was difficult. Uh, to put it in perspective, we had a, a great challenge in recruiting patients for it because they came to us because they were symptomatic. They wanted to have something done, and they didn't want to be randomized to a drug uh, limb, which maybe they'd already failed. So um, right there, you, all, you have kind of an immediate challenge in doing a study like this. It was known that there would be a big crossover from one treatment limb to the other, and, and Dr. Packer and the statisticians tried to account for that in designing the clinical trial. But it's, it was a difficult trial to do, and I think it will evoke controversy over the next five or six years as we analyze results. So, um, Sama, you may want to give your perspective. So this was a challenging trial from all aspects, even with the enrollment uh, goals. So the enrollment goals was uh, to start with with about 5,000 patients, and that was dropped down to about 3,000 and even less when the trial was uh, finally concluded. But nevertheless, Dr. Lindsay, tell us about uh, you know the the overall findings of the study and how these uh, findings can apply to our daily activity with our patients. Yes, in round numbers, there were 2,000 patients enrolled in the study, 1,000 in each limb. So one limb got medical therapy, and the other limb underwent ablation procedures. And about 20% of the patients who went through ablations required a second ablation. The problem was this. About 9% of the patients who were supposed to get ablations never did. And it's not quite clear why, whether there were financial issues or whether they changed their mind, or could they have been too sick. Now that's a problem because it would bias the results. On the other side, 
there were a uh, substantial number of patients, if I recall correctly, about 27 percent, yes. who crossed over from drug therapy to ablation. And that was a little higher crossover than I think was anticipated in the study. So whenever you do a, an intention-to-treat analysis, it's very difficult when there's a big crossover and people really didn't get exactly the treatment they were supposed to get. Nonetheless, in looking at these um, parameters by uh, an intention-to-treat analysis, the all-cause mortality was, there were modest reductions, uh, all-cause mortality was about 6% less with uh, ablation therapy, a very modest reduction uh, in, in absolute returns. And then um, there was a substantial reduction in the time to uh, recurrence of atrial fibrillation. And this is something we've seen in the past, that ablation tends to be more uh, effective. Now, again, to put this in perspective, about 47% of the patients had persistent as opposed to a uh, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation Maybe 9 or 10% uh, had uh, long-standing persistent. Now, persistent is a very broad definition that it covers people who had atrial fibrillation from anywhere from a week to months. And so that, that in itself raises some issues. But nonetheless, it was a distribution of patients commonly seen in the office. Actually, actually for me, I thought actually the, uh, <clears throat> the results were very encouraging because um, taking the intention to treat analysis and all the statistical analysis aside, uh, it, this is a big study that showed that actually ablation works. It keeps people in sinus rhythm more than medical treatment. It also showed that ablation is a safe strategy in those patients. The complication rate was very, very low. And then if we take into account subgroup analysis, for example, younger patients and patients who have heart failure, those patients tended to do much better when they had an ablation versus medical treatment. And this, especially with the, in regards to the patients who have heart failure, it corroborates the findings from Castle HF, uh, AFib uh, study, in which patients were randomized to either uh, ablation versus medical therapy in patients who had heart failure, and the ones who had an ablation did a lot better. So in, in that sense, I think Cabana is very encouraging. Uh, unfortunately, again, it was a very challenging uh, study to enroll in, and even when patients were enrolled, it was very hard to get patients to stick to their arm of treatment. And frankly, the fact that a lot of patients who were supposed to get medical therapy ended up getting ablation, even though they are in a study, means that medical therapy is not something that patients want to stick with for the long run. And, and, and to put this in perspective, though, um it's difficult to know what to do with an intention-to-treat analysis where there's so much crossover. If you took the patients as to what they were actually treated with, there was a reduction in cardiovascular mortality. There was a reduction, substantial reduction, in uh, uh, hospitalizations for cardiovascular problems, and the primary endpoint was reduced by a relative uh, 23 percent. So where the debate will occur over the next years is what do you do with a trial? with this much crossover. And if you go by what the patients were actually treated with, well, some would argue that there is benefit from actually being treated with an ablation procedure. And I, and I think that's the debate as to whether that's a valid way to do it. And I think part of it is we need to better understand the demographics of the patients who were originally supposed to get an ablation but didn't, and some of the other things that would help us to determine these changes. So uh, <laughs> that's where the debate will occur. But it shouldn't, it shouldn't 
detract us from why do patients go through these ablations in the first place. They go through the ablation to alleviate symptoms. That hasn't changed. This study wasn't about that. If anything, it would support it because the recurrence rates were lower in people who had ablations. The real question is, is there additional benefit? And the answer, I suppose, is maybe, but this study will provoke a lot of discussion over that very subject. So here at the clinic, we have been working very hard to determine the subgroup patients, a group of patients who will benefit from ablation, especially if it's done sooner than later. And our data is consistent that the sooner we intervene with an ablation, the better the overall outcomes, especially in younger patients and in patients who have heart failure. So actually, I am very, very encouraged with the results from Cabana. Now, I think in the future there will be studies um, that will be on a smaller scale. I don't think we're going to be able to do such a large study, first of all, because people you know, have learned the lesson that such a study is very difficult uh, to manage and to conduct in the first place. But I think uh, overall we will continue to have data, even if it's retrospective analysis, that will show that you know, ablation is here to stay, first for symptom relief, and secondly, I think uh, patients will do better overall uh, by getting an ablation, or at least suppressing atrial fibrillation uh, somehow without the you know, bad side effects that the patients have from medications. I think it's important for patients and physicians to understand that it's a progressive disorder. And as Osama has pointed out, earlier intervention, according to our data, seems to offer uh, better outcomes than if you wait too long in the course of disease where patients get progressive changes in their HA which are harder to, to reverse. And there is uh, data from Castle trial and other data suggesting that uh, for patients who have heart failure, you can reduce the um, rate of hospitalization by getting them back to a normal rhythm. And there's a lot of judgment and selection in making these kinds of decisions. Some people who are doing well, they don't need to go through this uh, necessarily. But for those who uh, do have symptoms or in whom uh, management would be difficult because of progressive heart failure, I think that that's where uh, it's more clear that the ablation procedure offers a benefit. And as for these other parameters that we've discussed, well, uh, we'll see what the debate uh, brings us over the next uh, five or six years. So in our practice, uh, Dr. Lindsay, um, how would you describe the patient that we now typically will, uh, you know, offer them an ablation? For, for me, uh, it tends to be patients who come from around the country who have been tried on medications, they have a lot of symptoms, and they, they aren't doing very well. So those aren't patients that I can randomize to one versus the other. And that was one of the challenges that I had in recruiting patients for Cabana. There are also patients who've read about the risks of taking antiarrhythmic medications and also recognize that the efficacy of these medicines is relatively low. So there the discussion centers on the fact that ablation procedures aren't perfect either, but this is what the potential benefits are in alleviating their symptoms. Then there's a small percentage of patients who may want to go through the ablation procedure to come off of anticoagulation. What I explain to those patients is that that's generally not the reason to go through an ablation procedure. And, the, and there's, a, there's a consensus that because of the relatively high recurrence rates related to a, uh, atrial fibrillation after ablation, 
that in somebody who has a significant stroke risk, you can't just stop the anticoagulation. Now, in people with lower stroke risk, if they're monitored repeatedly and say they're a year out, then I could have that discussion, but they continue to require close follow-up and monitoring, and there are now a lot of devices that they can use with their cell phones to uh, check the rhythm and see what that is. So that provides a, a potential opportunity for those patients, though it's not real well proven as to um, whether that's the best thing to do. And perhaps you have some so other there perspective. Is one more, um, there is one more group of patients that I would also consider ablation on, and that's the patient who may not be very symptomatic, but it's very clear that the left ventricular function mm -hmm. is starting to suffer. Either the LV is starting to dilate, or the ejection fraction is starting to drop. So in those patients, even though they would say that they're mildly symptomatic, I would offer them uh, an ablation in order to control the AFib because there has been a study recently, uh, the camera uh, AFib study, which was published in Jack, that showed that even in rate-controlled atrial fibrillation, a patient can develop uh, LV uh, dysfunction. And if we can restore normal rhythm, uh, then the LV dysfunction improves, especially if there's no scar on MRI. So I think uh, that's a subset of patients that I would consider for an ablation uh, sooner than later, even if they're not that symptomatic. Yeah, that's a good point. And many of the patients that are referred to us come from heart failure doctors, where they're having difficulty managing it and feel that if we could help them get the patients back into sinus rhythm, it, it would be beneficial. Also, to put this in perspective, Treatment of atrial fibrillation is not that it's only ablation or only medications. All our data and our goals are based on getting people back to a normal rhythm and getting them off of medications, but there are some in whom a combined approach is necessary. And that's just reality. But if, if we can get somebody who's struggling with atrial fibrillation, even if they're not completely cured, if we can reduce the burden of atrial fibrillation or perhaps control it with medications, they'll come back to us saying, that their quality of life is much better. So to wrap up, I want to thank you, Dr. Lindsay. As always, the discussion has always been great. I think the summary is uh, we still have a lot of patients that need our help with an ablation, either because they can't tolerate the medications, the medications are not working, they want to come off an anticoagulant, or because they're developing heart failure. And uh, I think I want to thank you again for a great discussion. Um, I always learn a lot by <laughs> here, sitting here and, uh, and uh, hearing from you. So thank you. One of the advantages we have is we get to bounce ideas off of each other. So thanks very much. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.